0: Welcome
1: everyone to the Radical Reverend show, and of course we are taping this off-site because the only people allowed into the radio station at CIUT these days Our one tech, the man with the soldering gun gun and the uh, duct tape, and the station manager. So uh, we still, of course, really value your input out there in listener land. Please send it to me on Facebook or on Twitter. I'm there as Sherry DeNovo, your host, C-H-E-R-I. D-I-N-O-V-O. And of course, all the shows we're doing now have something to do with a pandemic. This show is no different. Today, we're looking at two aspects of how we're dealing with this. Uh, One will be a faith uh, perspective from someone who is involved with the Wet Sueton in the second half of the show, because uh, of course, that situation is still ongoing. And for the first half of the show, we're dealing with none other than Pride Toronto and the changes that are going to be happening this year. And to help me look at that is our board co-chair, Shakir Rahim. Shakir, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show.
2: Thank you, I'm really happy to be on today.
1: So first of all, we've all heard the news that Pride is not going to go ahead as usual. How will Pride go ahead this year?
2: Well, we definitely still see the importance of having some kind of programming and outreach to our community. And so Pride Toronto has decided to go ahead with a digital online festival program. So right now we're hard at work creating a platform, booking artists, partnering with major cultural institutions to think about how we can get online digital programming into people's homes. We want to ensure that people can be entertained, they can feel a sense of community, and also that the artists who every year we support can also receive our support this year. So we anticipate having a schedule of different programming that people can tune into in the living room or in, in bed, what, wherever they might be in their, in their self-isolation journey, and still get a bit of that queer content and queer connection that's so important to them.
1: Sounds great. I'm, I'm hoping that we will be part of that. Um, <laughs> having been a participant in Dyke Day, Low these many years. So last year we did a woman's multi-phase service. Um, hopefully we can get that going again, probably on Zoom. I, I'm very interested though, as I'm sure other past participants are in what platforms are gonna be developed, um, what that's going to look like. Uh, will there be parties?
2: Well, I think, uh, so to answer your first question on, on sort of re- reaching out to those who usually participate, I know that our operations team is hard at work in thinking about how to reach out to those who've been involved in the past and incorporate them into this new program. So those conversations are certainly to come. I think there will be some element of a, of a party. So we're looking at, you know, different projects that have sprouted up uh, in the city, uh, like, you know, virtual queer Zoom parties and how Pride can engage with that. So I definitely think there is going to be that fun virtual party element. And that's a big part of the planning that's taking place now. How can we uh, bring that digitally to people's, uh, people's homes?
1: One of the real concerns, of course, coming out of COVID is social distancing, which is the very opposite of what Pride has been renowned for as we all get together you know, tens of thousands get together in the city. Um, what safety precautions are going to be? I mean, because people, you know, I can see the incredible urge to wanna hit Church Street, to wanna go to a pub. Um, how, how are, how's that gonna be prevented um, is one of my
2: questions. That's a great question. And for us at Pride, you know, one of the first things that we did when COVID-19 started hitting the headlines Is we made a very public commitment to follow public health guidance and we think it's important that we as an organization you know uh, critically but in a way that is faithful to experts ensure that we're telling our community and supporting our community to follow physical and social distancing so one thing that pride is doing for example is we're already providing resources to the community about what physical distancing looks like, uh, where they can receive support if they're encountering the very real challenges that come with taking that time apart from your friends or your family. And those are things that Pride will continue to do. So already, if you go to the Pride Toronto uh, website, there's a resource hub that lists different resources from those in our community working on these issues. And that's a message we're going to continue to impart uh, the importance of physical distancing and how all of our programming is going to comply with, with public health guidance.
1: Uh, If you're just tuning in, I'm speaking to Shakur Rahim, um, board co-chair at Pride, um, part of the new board at Pride, and we're talking about what Pride will look like this year in Toronto. But, um, Shakur, I also wanted to ask you about Prides around the world, because you're in touch with other Pride organizations. Uh, Are they doing the same thing? What are they looking
2: like? We are seeing a similar uh, pattern at prides across the world. So there've been a number of other prides that have also been canceled for now. So Montreal is a good example. Uh, And we are in touch with them. And part of our online digital programming uh, will include collaborating with those organizations. So the global organization, IntraPride, is also examining how prides can work together and cooperate and collaborate. And that those are conversations that, that we are part of. But yes, I think every pride around the world is thinking about uh, how can they best balance still having our community, our voice, and our need for celebration and protest uh, in the month of June or whatever other month they call pride month. Um, while still having uh, the important adherence to public health guidance and physical distancing. So I think you can anticipate that we'll include some of those other organizations, uh, either in our programming or be involved in programming with them as well.
1: In a sense, it's going to be a world pride this this year then. That sounds exciting.
2: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: (laughs) Okay, let's talk about the sort of the nuts and bolts a little bit, um, money. Uh, clearly, Pride has been, first of all, a source of uh, funding for the City of Toronto. I know City of Toronto is invested in Pride, but it also returns a great deal more than it costs the city, quite frankly. Um, and also all of the participants in Pride that pay their fees. How to keep the organization going? Um, I know we're all concerned, all of us, independent of Pride, um, and independent of the queer community about uh, business, you know, existing and maintaining and, and hopefully surviving. What does that look like for Pride?
2: Absolutely. So what we did as soon as, again, COVID-19 started hitting the headlines, is start planning for the contingency that the festival might not happen and that we might see a significant decline in revenue. And fortunately, what I can say is, is two things first a lot of our sponsors have had our back and they have said that while our support might be a bit differently structured this year or we might have to make some adjustments that we recognize the importance of pride and of providing ongoing support so we have a lot of our sponsors a lot of our uh, grant makers uh, other partners who are have said they're going to stick by us in these times And second, we've also been creative. We've thought about how can we adjust our expenses, um, adjust how we're operating this year in a way that's still equitable. Um, And we've managed to create a plan where we feel secure in Pride's financial footing. And I'm I'm glad I'm able to be here today to say that. And so in addition to us feeling secure, I know that members of our community uh, need support and particularly those members who rely on Pride as a source of support. Uh, And so we are also going to, in the coming weeks and months, announce what we can do, uh, like having the online digital festival to support those artists who are with us every year.
1: Uh, This is just a personal aside, but uh, I I know that I find that I'm working harder than ever. Um, It looks very different. It's from home and it's a lot of it's on Zoom. Uh, Are you finding the same as a co-chair of of the Board of Pride? Because I don't know, people think that we're all sitting at home, you know, like painting our nails. We're not. So, t- so tell us about your workload these days, Shaker.
2: <laughs> For sure. Yeah. No, it's definitely been an adjustment. And uh, you know, I'm I'm involved in a few other boards in our community as well, in addition in in addition to being a, a full-time practicing lawyer. So it's definitely juggling a, a few different balls and doing the best you can. And, you know, on a on a personal note, I think I've I've really abided by the philosophy that we all have to be a bit gentle on ourselves um and accept that You know, we might not be as productive as we want every day. There might be a few days where it's a little bit challenging, and and that's okay. And that's the tone we've set for, I think, everyone in the organization, that um, we're all doing our best, Uh, we're in this together, and we want to be supportive and understanding with each other. Um, And you know, I think we we see that issue in the queer community too, right? A lot of us may not have a, uh, what you might call a heteronormative nuclear family. And so, you know, things like uh, isolation or feeling distant or um, those sorts of issues can crop up as well. So we're trying to be really cognizant of that. I mean, all the way from me personally to everything we're doing uh, as an organization
1: speaking again to uh, Shecker, who's a board co-chair at Pride and we're talking about a whole new Pride board too um, and I wanted to ask you about that um, I've sat in on meetings with you around that at the city and it seems to be working well um, although it was born with a lot of controversy uh, but I know people in the queer community kind of want would like to hear I'm sure uh, just an update on that um, how's the board going what's it looking like um, uh, is it smooth sailing?
2: Sure. So right now we have eight board members and four of those board members, including myself, were elected directly by the membership uh, at our January meeting. And we're functioning really well as a board together. I think we all know that there are some important things to be done in the, in the time ahead. Uh, we're aware that rebuilding community trust, uh, reaching out to the community and ensuring that the organization is on stable footing are our core priorities. And so what I can report is that I, as a co-chair of Pride Toronto, feel confident in our board and in our staff. Um, But at the same time, uh, I take, and my co-chair, Alyssa Mohabir, takes very seriously uh, the need to be responsive to the community. Uh, We heard uh, loud and clear how the community was feeling at the AGM. That's the AGM where where I was elected as a board member and where I shared some of the community's concerns. And so what we hope to do this year is really focus both on the nuts and bolts of making sure uh, Pride as an organization is functioning smoothly, effectively, and also work on reaching out to the community. Uh, And one example of that, that your listeners can themselves uh, be a part of uh, is we have ongoing updates on our Facebook page about the different community consultations that we're doing, that are open to the public, that are on a range of different issues. And that's just one phase, what is expected to be a, a broader commitment to hearing from and interacting with our community members.
1: What sort of concerns are you hearing from the community members? I mean, I, I independent of COVID-19 now, and... and uh, and here's a shout out to community members who are feeling isolated and um i along with many 519 and others um are are there so i just wanted you give me an opportunity to make a public service announcement here but um not only you and the board of pride the 519 uh, myself and other queer friendly uh, uh clergy of all faiths are here. We're still here. We can be reached at the same coordinates. And uh, we're absolutely here for you if you need to speak. And I know isolation has been uh, a major problem, but also people who have mental health issues, uh, other issues, poverty issues, lost their job. I mean, that's hitting our community hard. Um, They all have concerns. So not to set those aside, but uh, to get back to my original question, what are you hearing as the major concerns from the community right now?
2: And, and that's in relation to COVID-19? Is that your sort of...
1: Well, uh, it, that and also not related to COVID-19. What are the concerns that you heard right. as, as new chair?
2: Coach? Well, so I think, I mean, I'll, uh, first I'll share the concerns that I think we've heard in relation to Pride Toronto. Um, and I think that the biggest concern has been uh, being responsive. You know, when the community comes to us, whether it's an individual member, whether it's a group and says we have a concern or there's something we're worried about. Ensuring the organization is responsive in a way that's respectful uh, is I think one of the key concerns that we've heard. And we're certainly not there yet in terms of ensuring that we are, uh, but we're, we're working hard to get there. We're thinking about how do we need to design our staff, Um, How do we need to design the entry points to reaching out to our organization? How do we need to think about how we communicate with someone when they express a concern to ensure that people feel heard, that they feel respected, and they feel listened to? So that's, I'd say, the number one concern that we've heard about that we want to be responsive to. Um, In relation to the broader issue of of COVID-19, I think it's many of the issues that you yourself just spoke about. Um, people who are queer uh, and who are struggling and who have been struggling uh, with poverty, Uh, people who are queer and who may not be employed in positions that receive support from conventional or traditional government programs or funding, Uh, people who are queer um, and who really rely on their chosen families or other kinds of social networks and seeing those folks to feel connected and to feel safe. And we're trying our very best to amplify um, those points of light in our community, like the um, 519, like the AIDS Committee of Toronto, like other organizations who are providing meals, who are providing online service access, who are still, you know, as you say, you know, open for business and trying to keep going during these times. We're trying to amplify those voices to reach those those members of our community in need.
1: Absolutely, um, and of course. At Trinity St. Paul's, let us know if we can help in any way with that. I wanted to get back to maybe you personally again. I'm speaking, um, we're talking about Pride generally, but also about the queer community. As we often do on the Radical Reverend show, I'm speaking to Shakur Rahim. He's board co-chair of Pride. Um, and a lawyer, I heard back there. (laughs) So, Shakur, what does that look like? What kind of law are you involved in, and uh, what does your practice look like under COVID?
2: Sure. Uh, So, I'm a criminal defense lawyer, and um, the practice, fortunately, uh, has not uh, been... Significantly impacted only because a lot of the work that I was doing is over a longer term range. So I've been fortunate that I've had much work to do at home, but I know that in general, you know, uh, in the criminal defense field, uh, the courts have been closed or at least closed for physical hearings. They're still open virtually, so that's had an impact on you know what can be done and um, uh, what sorts of uh, activities are available. Uh, but I think. Most significantly, like I think anyone, it's uh, it's really learning how to work from home uh, on a permanent basis. That's challenging, right? It's it's uh, it's 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 different to have your home and your office in the same zone and to figure out how to keep the boundaries. So I think, like all of us, I'm I'm still learning on how to strike the uh, strike the right balance there. <laughs>
1: um, it's interesting that you're in in criminal law of. And back in my Member of Provincial Parliament days um, and fighting for uh, trans rights, uh, it was very apparent that uh, once we got Toby's Law passed um, and added uh, trans rights to the Ontario Human Rights Code, that it would affect a lot of things. And it did affect prison, uh, the way prisons operate. Um, Certainly back then there was a, a huge amount of abuse that was going on for trans inmates. Um, now I can only imagine with COVID um, in, in the prison system we're dealing with, but some have described as a kind of petri dish of uh, infection. What's I know that there's been some move to let you know sort of low risk offenders out. Have you seen what have you seen in your practice related to COVID um, in the prison system? Because it, it seems to me that. One of the things COVID might bring to light, and hopefully we could learn from going forward after this is over, is how to do prison better. That's
2: a great, a great question. I think uh, one of the most significant shifts that I've seen is in bail applications. So, bail is when somebody, uh, you know, for your listeners, and uh, it's when somebody has been charged with a criminal offense. Um, they have a right to bail, a right to be. Uh, released into the community if that can be done in a way that's safe uh, to ensure their attendance at their future hearings. Because when somebody is charged with a criminal offense, they're still, of course, presumed innocent until found guilty. And what we've seen is that judges are more willing when they're faced with a decision about whether somebody should receive bail or should be uh, in an institution. Uh, more willing to take into consideration the impact of COVID-19 and there has been judicial recognition that if somebody is incarcerated, uh, there's not sufficient resources uh, and structure in prisons uh, to ensure that the proper physical distancing measures can be taken. Uh, And so it's a factor that weighs in favor of release in the community. Uh, That's the most significant uh, shift that I've seen. and certainly, I think it also, though, speaks to this broader question of, you know, why is it the case that in uh, our jails and our prisons, we have a situation where folks are being faced with, with those kinds of risks and the importance of, of acting on it. Uh, it's also enhanced the imperative for the courts to operate electronically or virtually, uh, which is something that's important, not just, you know, for the day-to-day convenience of lawyers, but for people who are coming to courts who may have to skip a day of work, uh, people who are trying to be sureties and have family obligations. So I think those are two elements in the criminal justice system that hopefully will, uh, will gain some momentum going forward.
1: Uh, I've also heard, um, uh, of course, from corrections officers um, who feel that they're working in unsafe situations now, etc. So there's more of a call, I think, generally in the in uh, the uh, kind of law and order system in which we find ourselves to um, to maybe develop some better systems. Um, one question I wanted to ask before getting off that topic though, and one of the concerns, and especially for the queer community, because there is so much poverty in the queer community still. Um, uh, certainly, I was a street kid. There's lots of street kids who aren't living at home, who are on the street. And uh, some of the ways the social distancing um, Bylaws now have been enforced on those who have no place to go, who are homeless and are being given fines, which of course they can't pay, seems a little bizarre to me. Um, any thoughts about that? I mean, I, one, of the, one of the folk I was talking to and in interviewing said, you know, you can't police your way out of COVID 19. Um, thoughts about the way social distancing has been enforced, especially in the queer community?
2: You know, I think it's uh, it's an issue that we have to pay attention to. There is no question that um, that it's you know it's, it's been recognized by provincial inquiries. It's been recognized by judges that there are serious issues uh, between uh, the police and marginalized communities, and how. Policing occurs uh, and how the criminalization of certain activities can disproportionately uh, impact those who are marginalized. And so I think there are a lot of queer scholars who have been active in this space. Uh, and, you know, for example, with the hashtag policing the pandemic on Twitter, uh, who are writing about this, uh, who I think are voices we should, uh, we should pay attention to. I think we only have to look at our own history of uh, HIV AIDS, of the uh, current existing state of uh, HIV criminalization uh, in this country to recognize that we as a queer community have to be vigilant, uh, we have to be critical, um, and we have to stay on top of this and make our voices heard uh, when we see overreach or when we see activities that could disproportionately marginalize the queer community.
1: Yeah, it's so important. And and so again, out there uh, in listener land, please, um, you know, know that there are there is help available if you find yourself uh, the focus of undue attention, simply because perhaps you are unhoused at the moment, or in other ways, marginalized. Let's, we just have a few minutes left, um, talking again to Shakir Rahim, board co-chair at Pride, about Pride. So let's finish up with Pride. Um, It's coming up. We will be excited about it. We're now at the beginning of May, um, so it's not that far off. Um, What are some of the highlights that you see maybe coming up that uh, will excite us enough to want to get online and take part?
2: For sure. So, you know, I think we are going to see some, we're still in the process of finalizing them, but some interesting bold, excuse me, queer names who are going to be part of our online programming. So artists that folks may be familiar with, listen to on a regular basis, you're going to have an opportunity to have those folks streaming directly into your homes. I think that's a real highlight. I think another highlight is going to be that we're thinking about partnering with some really major cultural institutions in our city so events that you may have gone to or activities you might have been involved with if there wasn't um uh you know these isolation guidance or physical distance guidance going on you may have an opportunity to have that content stream directly into your home uh, and i think we're also thinking about what level of interactivity can we have on these platforms so we're You know, you might have, in fact, you will have an opportunity to interact with with other queer folks uh, in a way that might not be quite the same as a in-person, you know, march or in-person event, but still is going to give you an opportunity to to feel that sense of queer energy and queer connection. And uh, I can say personally, that's something I'm looking forward to as well
1: we're all certainly becoming zoom experts and uh, <laughs> yeah. if anybody has uh if anybody has uh, been on a zoom you sort of uh a- a- event with multiple people you know it's kind of fun like it-, it really is kind of fun i mean and it is in a sense especially for concerts i've found kind of more interactive than your regular concerts sometimes because you see those faces and you see what people are doing and mm-hmm. you can kind of zoom in literally on uh, uh, you know one or two of them and discuss so it will be fun wonderful so we look forward to pride where can people check this out facebook where
2: yes they can check out our facebook feed our twitter our instagram um, and we'll definitely also have an announcement on our website as well uh, once we're rolling out the programming so all of our socials are where to go to find out more information
1: thank you so much and everybody else please stay tuned and show your pride in pride just like always take care Thanks, Shakir. Thank you. back here on the Radical Reverend show Uh, you just heard from the co-chair of Pride Toronto and what's happening with that celebration in light of COVID-19 but I want to veer a little bit I mean we're talking about nothing um, in all media these days except COVID and the pandemic Um, but life still goes on and some of our activists still go on and some of our actions still go on and there that world hasn't stopped just because there's a pandemic. And so our next guest is going to help us look at uh, one of the struggles, and that's uh, Patty Crowick. And she is a podcaster. She's a community activist. She is also part of our First Nations Indigenous community from the north of Thunder Bay. As she says, you turn right from there, right, Patty?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, from the
1: Lazul community. Uh, so, uh, Patty, welcome to the Radical Reference Show.
0: Oh, thank you for having me.
1: So let's talk about, first of all, the, the real action that we were all engaged in. I was one of them, going to demonstrations, turning up for this, and for that was a struggle on our West Coast um, uh, against, against the gas line there um, on behalf of the Wet'suwet'en community there. Maybe you could just kind of update us a little bit. Um, what's happening there? I mean, we don't hear anymore.
0: Uh, yeah. So- well, the pipelines are still being built. The Camps are still, you know, they've still got people working. And even though they won, you know, some early court cases, others, you know, they lost the injunction, there was supposed to be a um, a stop work because the environmental assessment had been rejected. Um, you know, so that was, so that was Seen as very good news that you know they wouldn't be able to do things because the uh, because this had been had rejected, but apparently there are still things that they feel that they can do um, outside of this, and so the work is continuing. Camps are still present, um, and you know, and these camps are not good, it's particularly in light of COVID-19, right? So you've got people from away coming into these small remote communities where, you know, there's not a lot of good medical infrastructure to deal with something like a pandemic. So that's been a huge problem.
1: Yeah. And of course, we were very aware um, back before the you know, COVID became the only topic we talked about of the RCMP involvement there. Is that still ongoing? Um, are they still around? Because one of the asks that we had was that they not be around, that this was this is native land.
0: Mm-hmm. As far as I know, they still are because, because the pipeline is ongoing. And so they're under orders to protect the pipeline, which is... You know kind of what the RCMP has always it's the force to protect can't the state of Canada not the force to protect the people who live in it absolutely so let's let's talk about you then and and
1: and talk about your background and how you got into podcasting in the in the first place because you are
0: a podcaster yeah I am a podcaster yeah so yeah it's kind of a funny story so um I used to work in social work. I, I used to do child welfare and, um, I had gone to a conference about, um, at OISE about, um, their decolon, one of their decolonizing conferences and one of the who challenged me to talk to my clients about race because it's no, it's not like, it's not news to me that I'm indigenous. So if somebody asks me about my experience in, as an indigenous woman, it's not offensive or scary or anything. It's, I welcome the question, you know, let, talk about how i might move through the world differently and of course if you're dealing with child welfare you know or policing or any of these systems you're going to experience these systems much differently so i got in the habit of starting to ask my clients about their experience as as black or indigenous people and at that time i met carrie who was taking care of her grandchildren and we've talked about this on the podcast so it's come from her so so it's fine Um, And I asked her what it was like, you know, how do you protect your children? How do you protect your grandchildren um, in the, you know, in this school system where they're the only black kids in their school? And she says, she says, well, I can't protect them. And I said, well, then what do you do? How do you build resilience into them? Because you can't go with them into the classroom where the stories are not their stories. The history is not their history. And she said, well, I teach them about our history about their family about their ancestors so that they know who they are so that they're strong in who they are so that when they come up against these other stories they've got a, they've got a solid a strong and solid background that they can stand on and from there all of our conversations after that went sideways into race we were always talking about racial issues and different things that she was coming across because they were involved with several systems um, in terms of taking care of the grandchildren and and other members of her family were going through things. And so we were always talking about it. And then when I stopped working with her and we became friends, we just kept talking about these things. And we thought, you know, everybody needs to hear what we're talking about, because what we're talking about is so important. And we were fortunate to get um invited by the niagara podcasters network uh, as a start and then we kind of went off independent on our own and the name came from kind of a shared concept in black and a lot of black and indigenous communities is the idea of medicine being more than the pill that you take right people are can be good medicine ideas can be good medicine the land around us is good medicine and so that was where we thought we would through our own conversations and with other people lift up the voices of those who are resisting and all the different creative ways that, that they resist so that people that are pushing back don't feel so alone. Because sometimes it can feel really lonely, especially in urban spaces. So that's what we do. And we've been fortunate to have a lot of really interesting guests and people willing to talk to us because yeah, it's just, we've just had some really interesting conversations.
1: What, um, how is COVID, I mean again we keep circling back to it, Um, we can't help ourselves, but um, how is COVID affecting First Nations? What's happening in Indigenous communities? I I mean we hear snippets through the news, we hear bits Mm -hmm. and pieces from governments. Um, As far as I know, um, the federal government's still fighting (laughs) in courts, you know, (laughs) on these issues, but you know certainly that's not what's coming across when when uh, trudeau speaks right. but but um but i know for example that it's really difficult to get real information uh even on covid stats even you know in cities and uh not in first nations communities never mind in first nations communities what's happening there
0: well a lot of reserves have closed down they're not allowing non-community members onto reserve um, My son was actually planning on going to uh, going up to the Peterborough area. He had a job and everything lined up and he was going to be living on reserve, one of the reserves around there. And then this happened. And so, you know, so he's not able to, he's not able to go there because a lot of the reserves are closed to uh, to non-community members. I know six nations just had their first death um, related to COVID-19. So, and, and then some of the, the restrictions that people are putting in place in terms of self-isolating and washing your hands, six, a lot of, a large part of Six Nations doesn't even have potable water. So when you have, and people sometimes live in overcrowded homes and if housing, we already know housing is inadequate on First Nations and we already know the medical systems. I mean, some places only have a nurse once every three months. So how are we supposed to meet these these expectations in order to keep ourselves safe when we've been deliberately under-resourced and unable to meet these needs. You know, we can't even take, you know, and, it's, and it is a matter of deliberate under-resourcing. This is, you know, medical, educational, none of these things are funded at parity with what provincial counterparts are being funded at so how are we supposed to keep ourselves safe when we're not given the tools to do so I'm very fortunate in in where I live I'm not on reserve I'm in the Niagara area um, so I'm very fortunate but I've got friends who live on six nations and that's what an hour and a half away from me that's not very far and you know they're having a much different experience
1: right um, it always astounds me and I think it probably astounds most of our listeners um who've you know, been following um, what's happening. And truly, um, I have to say, the Indigenous in our country and other countries have really been the strike force for our environment and on climate change and the climate crisis as well. So not just only on Indigenous issues, but on issues that affect everybody in the world. Um, uh, thank you, we have to say, for, for being there. Um, but, I mean, it always astounds me that, you know, I, we hear the same things that, and we know this to be a fact, that, you know, there isn't parity funding for education. There isn't parity funding in terms of health care. There isn't parity funding in terms of, for example, clean water and, and doing the kinds of response that we would demand of our governments, you know, in, in our cities. Um, what, like, when, when chiefs and others... You know, speak to bureaucrats, you know, federal bureaucrats, like, and say these things. I, I I guess what I'm astounded is, what do they hear back? Like, uh, I know that there's court cases going on, but I mean, how do they justify this? What is the justification? Have you ever heard one?
0: They always say, oh, we're spending this many millions on this and this many millions of that, and we're going to unlock the funding, but it's always over like a 10-year period. We have to re-elect you three times in order to get. In order to get what you're promising, and they'll say, "Oh yes, we ended this boil water advisory because we put in a treatment plant." But you didn't build any infrastructure to get the water from. That's the problem with Six Nations: is they have a treatment plant, but no infrastructure to get that water to people. So how can you call that a boil? How can you say that a boil water advisory is ended when you haven't put in the infrastructure to get the water to the people? So it's you know they make the promises and then you gotta hope for your best. But another thing, you know, a problem in terms of dealing with different layers of government is bands have elections every two years. So can you imagine how destabilizing that would be for Toronto, say, to be going through an election cycle every two years? How are you gonna get anything done when you're constantly in election mode and constantly reassembling your team and then people get mad and vote in another team? And, you know, you're just in this constant catch up and the level of, you know, People say, oh, you know, they need to account for their money. We're the most accounted for anywhere. (laughs) The amount of paperwork that they have to go through in terms of accounting for the funding that they get will say, oh, you know, millions of dollars went to this and that reserve. But they don't tell you how many millions of dollars was spent just on the bureaucracy. And so, you know, it's very small amounts on the dollar that are actually getting in to deal with this stuff. But the government can step back and say, see, we gave them five million dollars.
1: Now, why, so why isn't that changed, this every two-year cycle of elections? What's what's holding that up, reform there?
0: Well, that's the Indian Act. Right. And they were going to force banned elections despite COVID-19, um, but a lot of uh, communities pushed back against that, and the minister graciously allowed them to forego banned elections. But <laughs> they had to fight for that.
1: I, I mean, it's, it's just shocking, and I... I don't know, I mean, I, you know, we have lawyers in our congregation that are, and plus First Nations, who are involved in constantly fighting the bureaucrats around this, that, or the other, Mm -hmm. Um, but it it really is kind of astounding, and I'm wondering why, I mean, I sort of feel about it, because when I was in politics for some 12 years, um, you know, when you, when pollsters go out and poll people about what are top-of-the-mind issues, um, we were always dismayed to find that, for example, environment and poverty issues were like at the bottom, and jobs and the economy were at the top. Now that's shifted somewhat; like the environment is pushed, you know, being pushed up there. But never do they ever, I I don't know that any pollster has asked certainly, you know, the general population leading up to elections about First Nations or Indigenous issues. Mind you, if they had, I'm sure for the vast majority of people, it'd be probably very near the bottom. But this is true of all minority rights. I mean, you can never rely on the majority for minority rights. Um, Mm -hmm. It's always a struggle. Any suggestions as to, you know, how the rest of us can assist in trying to you know, stop this like you know, my goodness, like centuries and more old, um, absolute uh, nightmare that, that never seems to see light uh, where you know indigenous issues are concerned. Because I know there's you know, there's a number of us that want to get it on the agenda of you know, provincial governments and federal governments, and we have First Nations now folk elected to those, but I mean, they're very much in the minority and have their own battles, right? So
0: any suggestions, what can we do? Wow, that's a really big question. <laughs> um, I always start with building the relationships. That's where, that's, that's where I always start, because one of the big problems, and this is something that I've been guilty of and that I've come up, acro- come across, is we always think we know how to fix it, right? We always think we have the ideas, and we know what to do. Um, so, the most important and and that can be dangerous because the solution that I come up with isn't going to be the right solution for the people who actually live in the community and deal with the issues on the ground so the first and most important thing is building the relationships right I mean I talk about using social media intentionally look for those black and indigenous voices to follow um you know on social media hearing directly you know most you know, mid to large size cities have a friendship center. You don't have to be indigenous to be a member of it, right? You can go and you can just kind of hang out. And it's a little weird at first, but after a while you become familiar. And so you build those relationships. And then when there's a need for an action, show up. Like when Wet'suwet'en wanted actions, we took our lead from them. We didn't do what we thought we needed to do in order to get attention. We did the things they wanted us to do. We used their talking points, their information, because it was their fight, not ours. Um, I mean, it's ours in kind of a larger solidarity sense, but they're the ones that are living there. So we wanted to make sure that the things we were asking for were consistent with what they were asking for. Um, you know, so that's, that's really important. But And then the more we have... People that are allies or friends or, you know, good relatives is another good way to think about it. People that are being good relatives to us present at these actions and speaking up in support of us. Because when we shut down the railroads, everybody went bananas, right? (laughs) They were going to, you know, there was all kinds of threats and anger and hostility. And so putting yourselves between us and them is really helpful. I mean, if you're active on social media, that's a really easy place to get in between indigenous activists and, you know, settler collectors, a hashtag that was popular for a little while. Um, but even in your family and in your community and wherever you see inequity, like ever, whether it's in your business or in your school or, you, you know, in your organization, there's a policy that's creating that. And so it's, it's always about, and I take this from Abram Kendi, it's about pushing back at the policies. There's nothing wrong with Black and Indigenous people. There's nothing wrong with us. We are not in poverty because there is something wrong with us. We are in poverty because the government has set up policies and programs that keep us that way. And so it's about finding those policies, even at the smallest level. A friend of mine is a, a teacher librarian. She has gone through her library and held it of materials that's, you know, that's not Indigenous voices, that aren't telling our stories. And that's something that a teacher can do in a classroom, right? What material are you putting in front of your students? So wherever you are, find somebody to disrupt with and then find a policy that you can push back on, even if it's little. And then that makes it easier for the people that get elected into positions because that's part of the liberal party, you're part of the NDP party, which means you have to, to a certain not toe a line, right? You know, you don't get to those positions by, you know, by being strident about Indigenous rights. And we've seen some elected officials that have really done more to uphold colonial than they have to forward their own people. Um, Because it's a really hard place to be. It's a really hard place to be. And so I try really hard not to be super critical of them because I appreciate that they really are trying to help. Um, But the more we can push back on the ground and in our communities, we make their job easier when they start speaking up in parliament because it, it just it gives them a broader base and more support to stand on Thank
1: you, Patty. You're listening to the Radical Reverend show here on CIUT 89.5 FM. And this is of course an interview conducted by Zoom. So I apologize for occasional little glitches there in the sound quality. Um, We're talking to Patty Krawick. Um, She is a podcaster. She's a member of the indigenous community. uh, And we're talking about, you know, the struggles that are ongoing, um, both during the pandemic, before the pandemic, and probably after the pandemic. And um, what... Mm. uh, you out there in listener land can maybe do about it uh independent of of who you are Um, but just to keep ourselves informed um patty um i I also want to talk about because we're we're a progressive faith-based show so uh one of the things we pride ourselves on is being a queer positive um christian left uh but not just christian multi-faith um voice in in a world where that voice is rarely heard where Mm mainstream religious voices or right wing religious voices are the voices that Mm -hmm. tend to be heard and not ours so i i understand you are a christian so i want to talk to you about that um as someone who's indigenous as well so how could you be both
0: complicated (laughs) (laughs) yeah i do. yeah, I just, I just put out a piece in Sojourners. They just published in their uh, April issue, an article that I had written about sitting beside a stained glass window of white Jesus every Sunday. Well, not right now, obviously, because we're all at home. Um, but most Sundays, I sit beside a stained glass window of white Jesus. And the church was the source of Indigenous homelessness, right? Like, in, uh, you know, Indigenous people are... You know, physically homeless in terms of being on the street, but also like not living in our homelands. We are, we have been displaced. And, you know, we're in reserves and, you know, not on lands that were signed by treaty. You know, we're just kind of, we're, we're displaced. And the church was a big part of that in terms of pushing us aside and the church still causes a lot of problems um, particularly in northwestern ontario i'm very um i have a fundraiser called pay your rent and um, i'm able to kind of pay for things here and there in indigenous communities and i spent a a fair bit of money recently buying gear for two-spirit youth um started with the trans day of remembrance you know gear for them in living their lives and what they come up against because of the church up there, so it, it's complicated. But I think when I look at the text itself, and the way it, and the way it can be read as opposed to the way it is read. When we take the colonialism out of that text, which is something that was put into it by, you know, from the 1500s onwards, it's something that was put into the text. When we look at what Paul and Jesus and some of the others were actually saying, it's a pretty radical text that I can get behind in terms of social justice, in terms of freedom for, you know, for people who are suffering in terms of elevating those who are oppressed and, you know, that society has made shameful, but we need to treat differently. And so that kind of stuff I can get behind. A friend of mine um, is a pastor at Southridge and St. Catharines, and he recommended the book Women's Disarmed by Walsh and Keysmat, And that was just such a revelation to me in terms of how I could look at the text because Romans is so often used to beat people up. And they look at it very differently and to me that was just really important and so the ability to look at both things and I think indigenous people the worldview is it's much easier to hold two things and without needing to ne- necessarily reconcile them into a single solid truth to recognize that there are different ways of looking at something and that that's okay that both of these things can be true without them necessarily needing to be coherent um, that's really helpful for me in terms of looking at that and seeing how, I don't know, just, just just seeing how things can work together and can be. So I don't, although it's complicated, when I try to take the colonialism out of it, it makes a lot more sense. But I still um, sit beside a
1: white, white. white. <laughs> uh, I mean,
0: I, I think this is such a fascinating conversation,
1: Patty, and thanks for engaging with me in it. It, it struck me like I was just... Um, I was just looking at the Beatitudes or Blessings, it's Latin for blessings, and, and Jesus' words there where he the woe to section in Luke, you know, where he's saying, woe mm-hmm. to those who are comfortable now. And I I always and and you know, basically that whole little sermon um is designed for those who are abused, who are dislocated, who are marginalized. I- and absolutely against those who are doing the abuse, who are marginalizing. And I often wondered how, you know, for the early colonialists or, you know, in the slave trade, um, how, how you know, the masters and the colonialists, you know, the early settlers who were committing genocide could say those words out loud. And, you know, in their missionary work with indigenous or with, you know, Africans, um, and not hear them themselves that they were being castigated by those words. But I, but I, I, think you're right. I mean, you know, if you're listening to those words from the other side of that, you're hearing hope. You're hearing hope there, despite you know the, the master or the you know colonialist voice saying them, which is really interesting. There was a stat I came across recently, which I thought was really interesting. Like 49% of indigenous in Canada call themselves, identifies Roman Catholic, 25% as Anglican. Um, and uh, I'm a United Church myself, but I mean, all of our churches were involved in the residential schools. We were mm-hmm. the government's handmaidens in setting up the residential schools. Um, which were, you know, a nightmare and a horror factory, really, for uh, Indigenous. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the United Church and the Anglicans, to be fair, have paid some serious reparations around that, as they should, and should continue to. Um, we have a paying mm-hmm. rent service twice a year at our church, where we money goes to our neighbors um, who are involved in First Nations advocacy. Um, but the Roman Catholic Church is not. Um, and so mm-hmm. essentially the reparations are being picked up by taxpayers. Um, and again, this, these are the contradictions, I guess, we've been talking about that we're, we're holding or you're holding. Um, I mean, even as a woman, um, let's face it, um, the, that text is also, the Bible's full of misogyny too. Um, so, you know, so, you know, how do you keep going with it? <laughs> Patty, how do you keep going as a Christian?
0: I think if, when, when things are problematic, when I read the text, I'm okay with setting it aside a little bit. I was actually, I had a, con- and not necessarily rejecting it, but just, you know what, I need to put this aside for a little bit. I was having lunch with a friend um, a couple of years ago. She's, uh, she's a, minis- a Presbyterian minister. And I was, we were talking about the genocide passages you know, go into, you know, go into the land of Canaan and kill everybody, kill them all. And, and I said, and I said to her, as an indigenous person, that's really hard to read. <laughs> you know, here's God, you know, basically authorizing a genocide. And she says to me, she says, you know, the books were all, these, these things were written after the fact, you know, you know, quite a, quite a while time after the fact. And it, and it could be that maybe they thought they were doing God's work and this was how they justified it. And she just kept going with her salad. Like it, it wasn't like this for me I was like what (laughs) what are you talking about (laughs) and she just kept going she says well maybe that's just what they thought like that doesn't mean we don't have to attribute the same meaning to that that's what they thought and we can deal with the fact that that's what they thought but that doesn't mean that that's necessarily what was actually going on that might, that's how they justified it, and I. Was well, it's a book written by
1: humans, right? At the end of the day, it's a book written by humans. It wasn't dropped into the laps of humans by a you know the deity or the divine or the creator. It was written by humans, and we forget that. Um, and even the great theologians, I always say this of the past, like you know that you know the reformers like Martin Luther and others. Um, you know they rejected every every church and every uh, you know ministry has done this. Reject some and hold up others. I mean. Martin Luther said that the whole epistle of James was just an epistle of straw because he didn't like what it said, you know? I mean, this is what makes us theologians and not just, you know, um, passive recipients of something. But anyway, continue. Sorry, I interrupted. Mm-hmm. But, but people forget that. It's written by There's humans. A rabbi, you
0: know, there was a rabbi that I, I follow on Twitter and I think it was quoted else, but she had said that um, every generation reads the Bible anew that it says something, you know, or reads the Talmud and New, I think was what, the way she had said, but, and that's true. It's, it's a collection. It's a collection of stories written by people trying to figure the, trying to figure things out. And I mean, I can read like, so in the Anishinaabe tradition, there's creation story, there's a flood story and the stories vary. The stories aren't necessarily the same. Like they get the Mishomis book, you know, kind of gets treated like, you know, this is the the canon, this is the true one. Um, But there's lots of different ways of hearing and understanding these stories. And and that's okay. The creation or the flood stories don't have to be identical in order because what's important is the lessons we pull out of it. And so when I apply that same thinking to the text, to to biblical text, I can get what I need out of it. I can see that this was how they understood the world at that time. They're trying to understand their place in the world, their place with their creator, what's happening. They're trying to make sense of a really chaotic, really chaotic circumstances. So what does that have to say to me? Well, how can I understand my circumstance? Looking at the way they try to understand theirs. And then that gives me a different, a, a, a different lesson to take from it. Because if as an, as, a, as an Ojibwe person, I can take lessons from old stories about Nana Bush, who may or may not have been a real person, um, those stories are still important and meaningful and necessary in terms of understanding my life as an indigenous person. So I can read the biblical text the same way and I can hold these two truths at the same time without needing to say that one is better than the other. They're both ways of trying to figure out how we live in this world. And if it can help me be a better relative to the people around me, then those, that's fine. Uh, speaking to
1: Patty Crowick, um, who's an author, Indigenous uh, podcaster uh, about all things Indigenous um, today on the Radical Reference Show, always interested in your uh Input of course out there in radio land. So do send it to me. I'm still on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of the socials. Uh, you can get me there and uh, let me know what you think and of course uh, suggestions for upcoming shows. Patty, it's been an absolute delight. Uh, is there something? Is there an action happening we should be aware of? Just as a, as a kind of swan song to this interview, like
0: what can we do? Pay attention to what's happening at Wetzelton. Um, look at what's the narwhal, the TIE, uh the National Observer, they're all posting, you know, their, uh, ricochet media is another good source of what's happening. Um, mainstream media doesn't cover a lot of stuff, but they really do cover things Got reporters embed in these communities, and, and they do a really good job of covering. And so when you're bored of the COVID coverage, uh, pick up the narwhal or ricochet and see what's happening on the ground with Indigenous people. Mm-hmm.
1: Wonderful. Thanks so much, Patty Kravick. Until next time on the Radical Reverie Show.